The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, that is the anthem to our life. We should wake up every morning and sing that song, recite those words to our hearts, because there's never a moment when we do not need you. There's never a moment when we have it all together, when we can say we can go it alone. There's never a moment when we can step out on our own strength and our own wisdom. We always are in need of you. And Lord, we we know that we can ask that and you will always be there. We know that we can ask whatever we need and you are faithful and just to give us uh, what we need to forgive us our sins and to be a gracious God. So, Father, we know that we can ask in confidence. Lord, I pray this morning as we look at your word, as we center our our hearts on you, that you would be with us, that you would open our minds and eyes, and that we would better rest in you. In your name, amen. Uh, I would encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. That's where we are going to be this morning. But I want to start our time by actually uh, introing our upcoming Sunday school class. Uh, Some of you I know are faithful Sunday school attenders. Some of you, maybe that would be a new ministry to join, but I want to encourage everyone to join us uh, this coming Sunday, next Sunday, because we're starting a new Sunday school series. And there's actually, we're starting a new Sunday school format. There's going to be two classes to choose from. So maybe if one doesn't suit your fancy, there's going to be a second one there for you. But I just wanted to intro them both um, at the beginning of the service because it was interesting. We we, we picked them um, as two unique classes, and then as we were, as we've been thinking about them, and, and I've been promoing them in my own mind, I've realized we're actually hitting at the same um, issue in the Christian life. The Christian life is a difficult life to live. We live in this already not yet reality where we are saved by grace and we have confidence that we are good with God, but we are not yet in heaven in our glorified bodies. And so we are declared righteous and yet we're still sinners. And so as Martin Luther said, we are simultaneously saints and sinners. And that is a mess of reality of how a sinner who is saved by grace lives in Christ. And so Paul says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? It's like, may it never be. And why does he even have to say that because what the gospel says is we're good with God and we are good with God there's I mean full stop we are good with God but we are still sinners so how do we then deal with sin which takes us to the first class that we're doing or one of the classes that that we are doing, which is looking at sanctification. Now that that's a big theological word that basically looks at what does our life in Christ look like? How do we deal with the body of death that we're still dealing with? How do we deal with the sin that is around us? How do we look at sanctification? But the second class that we're offering actually is also on sanctification. It's also dealing with the messy middle of life. It's dealing with marriage. And the reason I say that it's also on sanctification is because marriage, let me tell you, is the chief sanctifying factor in every married person's life because the most difficult thing in the world is living with that dirty, rotten sinner and then you have to deal with your spouse. Now, when we have a class on marriage, this is why I'm, why I'm promoting it here. Some of you would think, I don't want to come to that class because if I go to a Sunday school class on marriage, I'm admitting that my marriage needs help. 
And we're not going to shame you. If you come to the marriage class, we are, we are going to assume everyone is great. Actually, we just assume that no one's good because everyone needs help. And it, 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 it's a struggle to live life with a sinner. And it's a struggle to be married. It's a struggle to, uh, to walk with a person in life. And so we are going to have a class on marriage. So I would encourage you, if you, if the marriage class suits your fancy, if, if you need help, this, listen, this is a place, this is a time when you can come, you can ask questions, you can have dialogue over the things that we all struggle with. So if that does fit you, if you are new in marriage, if you are struggling in marriage, if you, maybe even you're not married, but you want to prepare yourself for marriage, please come to that class. Or if you're struggling with what does this life in Christ, this sanctification thing look like, you can come to our sanctification class. Now, both of these are starting next week, 9 a.m. in the upstairs equipping center. There's two different classrooms. There's posters outside the room. So you will be able to see that. But I would highly encourage all of you to attend one of those because let's be real, we all need to have a conversation on how to deal with the sin inside of us. And for all of us who are married, we all need to deal with how to deal with the sin inside of us and our spouse. So promo over. John chapter three. Now it's been a while since we've been in the gospel of John. So I want to uh, just set us all up and remind us where we have been. In this gospel, we have looked at several different things already. We saw a prologue that John has kind of highlighting who Jesus is theologically. We saw that in John chapter 1 through 18. Then we launched into Jesus's ministry. And it's been interesting because in the opening of Jesus's ministry, we could highlight it um, in this way that John has been proving through four different episodes that Jesus is better. And Jesus is better in particular. Jesus is better than the religious system which the Jews are living under. We've seen four stories of how Jesus fulfills or surpasses Judaism, or rather I should say this morning is the fourth story how Jesus fulfills and surpasses Judaism. And I've kind of, I'll just, I'll just put this out there, I've kind of struggled at times to know how to address this passage because I could have put it in that context where we look at it and see how Jesus fulfills and surpasses Judaism in the same way that we saw like with the wedding in Cana that Jesus is the true bridegroom we saw the cleansing of the temple that Jesus is the embodiment of the temple we saw the conversation with Nicodemus last time and see that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And this particular time, we could see this comparison, this in our text this morning from 322 through 36, this comparison between Jesus and John the Baptist. So I, we could look at this passage from that aspect and see how Jesus fulfills and surpasses the religion of the day. The second way we could have looked at, we could look at this passage and it's a good way to look at it, is from a theological side to see how baptism is being played out. We could compare Jesus's baptism with John's baptism and what's happening with these two types of baptisms. But this morning with this passage, I want to have a little more personal focus. And I have to say, this passage has been one of those, as I said in the uh, update video that I sent out, I, it's, it's one of my favorites in the entire book, even before we jumped into the Gospel of John, when I was thinking through these passages, I've been excited to preach this. The problem when a pastor is excited to preach this is then they, they, they heap a bunch of expectations upon yourself. So the worst thing I want to do is like not do this passage justice, which I know I won't because I'm a sinner and, and weak, but whatever. I hope that this passage hits home as it's hit home with me. But I want to focus in on this passage from a personal perspective. This passage is dealing with a well-meaning question, 
a question that John's disciple asks John. And I say it's a well-meaning question because I want to be gracious towards the disciple of John that asked the question, but we also have to be gracious with ourselves because it's a question that if we're honest, we've also dealt with, struggled with, asked ourselves. And so it's a question that is still very relevant for today. Now, even before I read it, I have to to give a little sermonette. I know I'm I'm having like starting and stopping a lot. We, We will get into this. Here's the sermonette. Here's how I was going to start this sermon. I was going to say that this passage of Scripture is for me. That this passage has wrecked me, has caused me to pray and to, to repent a lot. That this passage is for me and that you really can just observe how I've had to apply this passage. In one sense, I wanted to get you off the chopping block, if you will, and this was all for me. But here's what I realized. If I thought that this passage was just for me, I was being a little short-sighted with Jesus's gospel ministry. And to be frank, I was being um, a little prideful because this passage is just not for individuals in full-time ministry. This passage is just not for pastors. This passage is for everyone who is a disciple of Christ. But the question that can be asked is, who is a disciple of Christ? And it can be very easy at times to think that the those who are disciples of Christ are those who are in full-time ministry, those who are pastors, those who have been professionally trained. But the answer to who is actually a disciple of Christ is anyone who follows Christ. And who follows Christ? Anyone who has been saved by grace and born again. So the mistake that I was having was to think that, that there are some that this passage applies to because they are disciples and some that doesn't. And I kind of had to step back and go, why was I making that, that, that mistake in the first place? And I think here's why I was making it. Because that's how American Christianity has been set up. The religion of our day, culturally speaking, is one where Christ has been turned into a consumeristic event. There are some who are attenders in Christ, there are, and then there are others who are laborers. There are some who are spectators of ministry. There are others who serve in ministry. There are some who attend a church. There are others who belong to a church. There are some observers, and there are other followers. But there are not two different categories of people in the body of Christ. There are not people who it says, well, Jesus is a part of my life, and others who say, Jesus is all of my life. There are those who are disciples of Christ and those who are not. Now, the footnote to this is there are some people who are attending the body of Christ. Maybe there's some in this room this morning who would consider themselves observers because you're looking around saying, I'm still not there. I'm not so sure if I believe this thing. I'm still figuring out if this thing is real. And if that's you, welcome. We're so glad you're here. But if you are, a believer in Christ, if you have been saved by grace, if you look at him and say, and look at Jesus and say, he is my Lord, you are his disciple. So maybe some of you have been looking around in in, in this gospel trying to figure out, where's my place? Where do I fit in? Who should I apply? Which role do I play in this? If you are a believer, you are his disciples. That means that you have an active role because there are no passive bystanders in the body of Christ. There are only active workers. So as we get into this, this is not just for me. This is for all of us. Sermonette over. I want to read for us our passage. Our passage is John 3, 22 through 36. You can look at this. I'll read it and then we will unpack it. 
After Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and the Jews over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourself bear witness to me and that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. But he who comes from above is above all, and he who, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks, of, uh, speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand, and whoever believes in the son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's unpack this for a moment. First section here that, that we get to from 22 to 24 is, is really just uh, looking at some background material and moving Jesus from Jerusalem to the Judean countryside. We don't know how long Jesus was in Jerusalem at this time, but, but he at some point left the city and went out into the country. And there he was baptizing. Now, there's a couple of notes here just uh, by way of um, kind of some textual stuff. It says that Jesus was baptizing. And one, you can say, oh, great, Jesus is baptizing. The problem is in four, not the problem. Here, the, the issue that we have to deal with is in 4, 2, chapter 4, verse 2. It says Jesus did not baptize. He did not physically baptize. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus was not functionally baptizing. His disciples were baptizing. But then that brings up another point. Why does it say that Jesus was, bap was baptizing? What's happening is that Jesus went out into the countryside and people were being baptized in Jesus' name. Baptism isn't new. We've seen baptism. John the Baptist was baptizing. But prior to that, the authority of the baptism came from John the Baptist. Now the authority of the baptism is coming from Jesus. And this is creating a stir. And the stir is among John's disciples saying, wait a second. That, this, is, this is throwing off our game here. Just a couple of other things that happened. Um, the reason that there's a parenthesis in chapter, in verse 24 rather, for John had not yet been put into prison. When John the gospel writer wrote this gospel, he knew that other gospels existed. Like he knew of Mark's gospel. He probably knew of Luke and Matthew's gospel. So he knew that other people had been told the story of Jesus. And the difference in those gospels, the synoptic gospels, is they look at Jesus's ministry from kind of a chronological viewpoint. So they're going, wait a second, John was in prison. So how is Jesus now baptizing at the same time that John is baptizing? So John, the gospel writer, is kind of tipping his hat towards those other gospels, realizing you've probably heard this story, but this is before John was thrown into prison. Now, what in the world is this conversation all about? And why was this episode given to us? What is happening here? 
The main question or concern is about authority. It says that Jesus was baptizing in the wilderness, in the countryside, and people were coming out to him. And John's, the gospel, the John the Baptist, John's disciples were suddenly observing their crowds being split. You see, John the Baptist had been in the countryside baptizing people. So they had always seen people come from Jerusalem, come from the surrounding areas, and they were coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. So he was creating a stir, a crowd. Just think back in chapter 1. That's why when the Pharisees came to John the Baptist and started questioning him, who are you and what are you doing? And John the Baptist got to sit there and go, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the authority. I'm not the one. Somebody is coming. Well, now Jesus has started his ministry when people are coming from Jerusalem and coming from the neighboring towns, instead of going to John the Baptist, they're going to Jesus. And John the Baptist's disciples were struggling with that. Because all of a sudden, they were dealing with this envy. They, they were dealing with this frustration of, hey, our platform is diminishing we're no longer the top Baptists in the crowd. We no longer have the biggest following. John, you are losing power because you are losing, and power and authority because you are losing your position. There's not as many people here. That's a problem. And this sets up for them to go to John. It says they were having a discussion with some other Jew, and they're talking about purification. They're talking about authority. They're talking about what should go on here. And they go to John the Baptist, and they approach him in a very interesting manner. Think about John the Baptist. He had one job. His job was to be the forerunner of Christ. And, I, and what we have seen in this gospel already is he makes it very clear that he is here to proclaim that the Lamb of God is coming. And when he saw the Lamb of God, he made it very clear, that's him, not me. So his entire ministry has been surrounded by saying, I'm not the guy, he's the guy. And these disciples, if they've been with him for very long at all, have heard the fact that, hey, the Messiah has come. But look how this, these disciples approach John. Rabbi, they give him the authority and honor and the position that he deserves. Rabbi, teacher, this is actually the only time in the gospel of John that anyone else is referred to as rabbi besides Jesus. Every other time Jesus gets the title rabbi because it's a title of authority, position, and honor. Here they're saying, rabbi, you are our teacher. We are, we are your followers. Rabbi, he who, was, he who is with you across the Jordan, whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Notice, they say, Rabbi, teacher, look how they refer to Jesus, the one who is across the river that you bore witness to. By now, they would know this joker's name. By now, they could have said, Jesus is taking your people. They could have said, the Lamb of God is taking your people. But instead, they have this juxta juxtaposition, that was a hard word to say, between their teacher and Jesus, rabbi, and okay, hey, that guy over there is taking your people. I'm sure they entered this question thinking they were actually protecting John. Just consider these disciples of John. Their lives had been changed by him. They have seen the truth. They, I'm sure they were following after Judaism, after the 
religion of their day. And all of a sudden, John comes around and says, no, you, you need to repent of that. So they were gracious to this individual. So they're coming up saying, listen, I, 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 I'm just trying to help you. John, it's not me that I'm worried about. I just want to make sure that you're not hurt. John, you know, you've done so much for me that I want to help you. John, what's going on here? And John gives three very clear responses to these disciples. What's going on here? And this is where I want to get, take a personal focus. And I want to offer three imperatives, and these are the imperatives that I'm preaching to myself. So this is where you get to experience the sermon that I'm preaching to myself, the one that I need to write on my wall and just remind myself of every single day. And as disciples of Christ, we should remind ourselves every single day. So as we're going to launch into this response from John from 27 down to 29, three things that I'm sorry, they're going to hurt because it's hurt me as I've really considered these things. Three imperatives. Here's the first one. Don't take credit for anything. Don't take credit for anything. The hardest thing for a driven and passionate person to hear is that they can't take credit for what they have done. Where John the Baptist starts with his disciples is you can't take credit for anything and I can't take credit for anything. Look how he says it in here. 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That's hard. That's a hard truth. The thing that you've been striving for, that you've been struggling for, that you put your mind to, that you hope that you can discipline your body and mind and life around to achieve what you have to lay over top of that is that verse. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And it's easy to think that that only applies to the ministry context. Like as a pastor, I'm, I'm going to make this personal so that you guys can experience what I've been feeling. As a pastor, pastors don't build churches. They don't build, I, I can't build a church. I can't. No one should come to a church that I'm trying to build. I'm not good enough. I can't save you. The Lord builds the church. But there's this thing inside of me that I want to see the church grow and to uh, explode and to be strengthened. But I have to step back at the end of the day and go, I didn't build a church. The Lord built the church. I didn't bring people here. He brought people there. And it's easy to apply it in that context. It's a little harder to say that whatever you are thankful for, whatever you are proud of, whatever in your life you step back and say, look what I've done, you have to give the credit to God. There's nothing in your life that you can say, I did that by myself. And, and, and as a driven and as a passionate person, as somebody who has strived for that thing, that's hard to stomach. But this is what John the Baptist reminds us of. A person cannot receive even one thing, even breath, even clothing, even money, even status, even children, even a healthy marriage relationship, even you fill in the blank, whatever it is, one thing 
unless it is from heaven. I mean, that, if that just doesn't knock you down and go like, okay, Lord, you have to, you have to bring it. But here's what's interesting. I wonder if the disciples were puzzled by this. I'm sure they were actually when they heard it, just because when we hear it, we're puzzled by it. But they're puzzled because that didn't fit their earthly standards. That didn't fit how the world judges things. That, that, that doesn't compute. Because we so easily fall into the same trap that Israel fell into and the world falls into when we give honor to things. You see, when they were comparing John and Jesus, one of the struggles that they were having was um, if people are coming out from Jerusalem and they got the option of picking John the Baptist or Jesus, why aren't they picking John the Baptist? He has all the qualities the world's looking for. He's the guy that, he's the guy who's been drawing crowds for a long time. Why is this joker, this, in one sense, this no-name joker, drawing everyone to him? That doesn't make sense. And I get it. Because how is Jesus, the Messiah, described even before he came? Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Where Isaiah 53 lands us is that Jesus was an ordinary guy. I, I, I don't know how, how Jesus looked. I don't know what he looked like. It is definitely not the American Christianity, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Kenny Loggins-looking dude that we put on the, on the postcards of who Jesus is. I don't know what he looked like, but according to Isaiah 53, he wouldn't stand out in a crowd. But John, he's got this appeal that people are coming to him. I mean, he's done a good job of creating this, this longing. And so these disciples are saying, why is Jesus drawing more people than John is? And as I said, it's because they were looking at it the same way that Israel was looking at things. You see, there's a story back in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 8. The nation of Israel, who had walked with God for a hundred or more years at this point, who had seen miraculous things at the hand of God, and they had conquered nations that they should not have been able to conquer. They were able to make it for 40 years in the wilderness, make it out of Egypt, and then conquer the land of Canaan. They got to a point when they looked at the prophet Samuel and said, we want a king. And the reason they wanted the king was because all of the surrounding nations had kings, and they wanted to participate in the whose king is best competition. They wanted to be able to say, look at my king, how, many, how much gold he has, how many wives he has, how much cattle he has, how big is his palace is, all this stuff. They wanted to be able to participate in that competition, that earthly man-made competition. So they went to Samuel and said, we want a king. Now, Samuel did what he should have done as the prophet and goes, you have a king. It's the king of kings and lord of lords. You want somebody else? They said, yeah. So Samuel goes to God, God in frustration, God in frustration goes, fine, give him a king. Well, which king did they pick? They picked Saul. They picked the guy that according to their standards would win the who has the best king competition. Tall, dark, and handsome. It was a man of valor, had all these military achievements. They picked him. Well, how did that turn out? Not very well. Because very quickly, they realized that, oh, Man's standards aren't best. 
And so then who comes after him? David, the, the skinny, uh, wimpy dude who's a shepherd that spends, probably smells a little bit and spending too many nights with, out in the fields with sheep. And he's the guy that God uses. The problem with John's disciples is that they were struggling with who God chose to bring about his divine plan of redemption. They were struggling that they said, we're trying all of these things and all of a sudden we don't get the credit for it and the credit is going to somebody that we don't think the credit should go towards. So the first imperative, the first lesson that I'm taking away from this is that none of us can take any credit for what the Lord gives us. And none of us can say, we deserve a bigger following. We deserve a bigger church. We deserve a bigger nest egg than what the Lord gives us because he gives us what he desires. Second, second imperative, know your place. Look at where John goes from this. He says, you yourself bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John reminds his disciples very quickly, I've never said that I'm the Messiah. I've never said that I'm the guy. I've never said that I'm the ultimate. I have always said that I have been the forerunner to that guy. I know my place, disciple, and my place is not the bridegroom. Now, what's this illustration that he's giving? He's picturing a wedding. And with the wedding, there's the bride, then there's the groom, and then in our context, there's the best man, or in their context, there's the friend. And actually, in this context, the friend or the best man at the wedding had far more responsibilities than the best man has today. Today, it's like, don't lose the ring and don't make a fool of yourself at the speech. That's about all he gets. In this context, the friend, the best man, had a lot more responsibilities. He's the person who's actually protecting and preparing the bride for the bridegroom. He's responsible for calling people to the wedding. He's responsible for making sure that the wedding goes as planned. He has a lot of responsibility on him. But even in this context, that his role never rises to the notability of the bridegroom. He never gets in the pictures with him and goes, I'm the front and center dude. He realizes I am just the witness. I am just the forerunner. I am just the friend. He understands his place. John realized that these disciples forgot their place. And the place that they have forgotten is that they can't save anyone. John's over here going, I'm glad they're going over there because I can't save anyone. My, my baptism, my life does not save anyone. The only person that can save somebody is Jesus. So yeah, I know my place. I am only here to point them towards him. So these people need to leave me and go to him because he is the Messiah and I am not. But again, allow me to get personal. I struggle at times with spending more time looking at what the friend of the bridegroom says about things than what the bridegroom says about things. I have to catch myself from saying, well, John says this and Tim says that and Calvin clarified this one thing instead of saying, what does Jesus say about this? What is the bridegroom trying to tell me? 
I'm more worried at times to align myself, culturally speaking, with the right human character that has the right theology and right perspective and blah, 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 instead of saying, I'm over here with Jesus. And John the Baptist realizes that, okay, I don't care what any other person says, there is only one Savior. Here's what I found fascinating as I was studying this, how often I came back to the book of 1 Corinthians. I... I I could have quoted a lot from the sermon in 1 Corinthians, but for the sake of time, I did not. And I just want to share with you one episode. I think I actually have a second one. one. One thing here. There might be a second one in my notes. I forget if I took it out or not. But here's 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. And let's just be real. This applies today as well. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned each to you? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You see, so often in our lives, we're, we, we sit and go, well, I'm with John. You can fill in the blank, whichever John you like. Or I'm with Tim, or I'm with Calvin, or I'm with fill in the blank over here. We align ourselves with the man, with the fallible human man, instead of aligning ourselves with God. Because as it continues in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 3, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Get that. He who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants, he who waters are one, and each will receive his wage according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. John understands his role. I am but a herald to the Messiah. I just point people towards the one who can save. I am not the one who can save. I know my place. And look at his response with this. The end of verse 29. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. These disciples were anxious over the fact that their crowds were diminishing, their platforms were drying up. They, they thought my power and my time is over. John's joyful about that because he says, good. I'm glad that people have seen what I was called to do. I'm glad that people have seen the Messiah and are going to him. Here's my question for you and the question I've been asking. Whenever we're excited about things, we tell people about it. Like I've told a couple of people, I'm gonna tell now about 100 people, the newest Spider-Man movie is probably the best one. Told a couple of people this season, you should go see that. It's a great movie. If, if we have a new car, we tell people about the new car. If there's a new company that we, that we like, we tell people about the new company. If there's a new restaurant in town, because there's so many new restaurants in town, we tell them about that. If there's a new investment venture, we say, you should, you should look into this. John felt a joy and passion about telling people about Christ. Don't come to me, go to him. I'll ask the question and then we'll move on. As a disciple of Christ... When was the last time that you said, I just have to tell you about this joy that's in my life? Have you heard of Jesus? Because on top of everything else in your life that's going to fail you and burn up, the one relationship and the one thing you need to know about is Jesus. When was the last time out of excitement and joy you walked up to somebody and said, I have to tell you about the thing that you have to know about? And that's Christ. Okay. We've seen that we can't take credit. We've seen that we have to know our place. Third thing, and I have got to speed up. 
Don't get in the way. Don't get in the way. That's really what John is talking about here with his famous, and I will say last words recorded in the Gospel of John. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's so easy for us, even in the Christian life, for us to slip into saying, look what I've done in my life, and if you follow after me, you can be better too. It's so easy for us to, to, to get that exact um, procedure of if you do X, Y, and Z, your life is going to be really happy. And so, let me tell you about my X, Y, and Z, and you can follow after me and you can do the same thing. But that's not how the Christian life goes. It's not a, 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 a matter of us proclaiming and announcing what we have done and saying, if you do the same thing I've done, you too can, can be better. Rather, it is always looking at the good shepherd. I was thinking of the, the quote that Doug Searle said the last time he was here. We're all sheep, and we're all just looking up going, that, that's the good shepherd. None of us are that shepherd, that good shepherd. None of us can take that spot. We all have to understand that throughout our life, regardless of what we do, regardless of the victories we have, regardless of the platform that the Lord has given to us, we are all continually decreasing and allowing Christ to increase. Here's how I've been been thinking about this, and and, and this is an an interesting one to apply. I want to see this body grow. And I don't just mean numerically. I mean in ministry impact. I want to see our body impact the world around us in a deeper way. I want to see this body impact each other in a deeper way. I want to see us grow, become stronger, to increase. But this verse, he must increase and I must decrease, can create this tension because at times, even in my own life, when I'm like, well, I can't take credit for anything. I have to know my place and, you know, I shouldn't get in the way. It should seem that I'm then constantly rejecting anything that looks like growth or anything that looks like um, achievement and constantly just pushing it off. And yet the Lord uses secondary means. There are individuals out there, faithful, gospel-centered ministers who have a very large platform. And so from the earth standards, they could say, you're breaking this verse. But rather, their platform is not about themselves. Their platform is about Jesus. So it goes back to what is our intention as a church? Do we focus on things like growth? Do I focus on things like growth for the sake of, I, you know, I just want the platform to rise? No. We pursue growth because we know that we want to share Christ's name more. So even as John is saying, he must increase, I must decrease, that doesn't look like John walking off the scene, going to some cave somewhere and just going to die. That means John continues in his ministry, proclaiming not his name, but Christ's name, and continues to say, come follow me so that you can follow him. You know, as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Okay, really quick, we have five verses to go through, and I can wrap it all up pretty quick. So I just want to read once again 31 through 36. He says this, but I'll I'll stop and preface it this way. In the same way that at the end of Nicodemus' story, John stopped and kind of gave commentary about what was going on, he's doing the same thing here. 
This is not 31 through 36, John the Baptist speaking. This is John the gospel writer speaking. This is John stepping back and giving commentary to us of here's what you need to hear. Here's what you should hear from this episode. So look where John the gospel writer goes. He who come is from above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthy way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. And whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, and he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son. The Son has given all things and has given all things into his hand. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. How do you sum up what John the Baptist is trying to describe to his disciples? And how do you sum up even the entire gospel itself? Jesus is the Savior. Just focusing in on verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And why is that? Because Jesus is the only one from heaven. Jesus is the only one with a divine birth, supernatural birth. Jesus is the only one who has seen God. Jesus is the only one who has this intimate connection with the Holy Spirit, even more than we have, because he and the Holy Spirit are one in the Trinity. Because Jesus is the only person who can offer true hope in salvation. How does he sum all of this up? Basically, what John, the gospel writer, is saying is, regardless of the person in ministry, that includes John the Baptist, who had a fantastic ministry, the only person who can save is Jesus. But look how he actually ends it. And if you believe in anything else, the wrath of God remains on you. What John is doing when he is calling people out from Jerusalem to himself is saying, you have a problem. That problem is you're a sinner. And that sin, and God has wrath towards that sin. And if that wrath is not satisfied, then when you die, you will satisfy that wrath in your own body because God must punish sin. So you have two options here. You can believe in the Messiah, the, the, the person who's going to live the perfect life and die the perfect death and rise again and give that to you. Or you can do with that wrath on your own. And there is only one answer, one response, one solution to that problem, and that is Jesus. Our world throws so many different saviors our way. There are so many different false gospels that are, that are proclaimed to us every single day about ways that we can be satisfied, that we can be comforted, that we can trust to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good right now. But they're all false gods because there's only one way that we can say that we will spend eternity in heaven with God, and that is through his son. As we transition to communion this morning, I just want to remind everyone of why we do this and what these elements represent. These elements represent the perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection that we have in Christ. These elements stand opposed to all of the other false idols, false gods that we are presented with. Six days a week, our world is bombarded by false ideas of salvation. 
Our world is fantastic at creating them. And January is one of the best ways to understand this. Because right now, it's very easy to think that whatever New Year's resolution that you are applying is the answer to your problem. And it's got nothing wrong with those resolutions. I'm working on some as well because I've got some stuff I've got to deal with. But I understand those don't save me. Those might make me a better person, a healthier person, a more disciplined person, whatnot, but they don't save me. But so often the way that the world describes those things is if you do this, you're going to be good. Then we come to the table on Sunday and we are reminded that the only thing that can make us good, right, righteous, is not from our hands. It's from Jesus who lived the life that we need who died the death that was required for us, who rose again and defeated death and offers that to us by grace through faith. Believer, as we take this together this morning, I hope that you can take it and you can be renewed in your trust that Jesus is enough and Jesus is better. But if you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Christ, maybe you're one of those, as I talked about, one of those attenders they're still trying to figure it out, not sure what's going on. Here's what we ask. Just let the plate pass you by because we don't want it to confuse you. Because we don't take this to save ourselves. This isn't one of the steps. The only step is by grace through faith, is trusting in Jesus that his life was enough, that his death was enough, and that we can't do it. So we just ask that you let this pass you by so it doesn't confuse you. Let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you for this well-meaning disciple 2,000 years ago who asked John these questions so that we might be reminded that it is all about you and not about us. Lord, I just want to repent publicly for myself and for us in the room of our false idols. Those things that we, we put in our life thinking because of this or that, now I'm good with you. Lord, help us to pursue life, not with trying to make a name for ourselves, but help us to pursue life that is constantly looking at you, constantly glorifying you, constantly decreasing so that your name can increase in our life. Father, just thank you for this reminder and thank you for the gospel. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.